Okay, so after being introduced, after being introduced to the great red dragon in chapter 12 and chapter 13, we were also introduced to his two henchmen, the sea beast and the earth beast. Both of those things represent various aspects of the corrupt Roman Empire. So we've been introduced to the red dragon, his two henchmen, in chapter 14, we're going to be introduced to the harlot, and we're also going to learn very clearly that God and his people will be victorious over these enemies. They will be victorious over the red dragon and the two beasts. Now, as we go to chapter 14, as we dive right into chapter 14, we covered the first five verses on Sunday. We saw in the first five verses of Revelation 14, we saw a picture of the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus, standing on Mount Zion with who? Who is he standing with? It's a number. The 144,000. The 144,000 represent who? God's people. The totality of God's people. They are singing what? They're singing a new song. A song that seems to be exclusively for them. They're described as being chaste, blameless. They have no guile or deceit or lying in them. And they follow the lamb. They follow him where, according to the text? Wherever he goes. Wherever the lamb goes, that's where they go. And we do that today. We do that. We follow the lamb wherever he goes when we submit to his teachings. When we just do what he says, that's us following him wherever he goes. That's the idea there. Now, in verses 6 through 7, we have some angels. We have some angels that are going to start making some announcements. And so we need to listen carefully to what the angels have to say. The first angel, as we start in verses 6 through 7, has a message for all mankind, all the people on the earth. This is the idea of all those in the empire. Because remember, this is a world empire that is coming against God's people. His message for all mankind is found in verse number 7. There are four things I want to highlight there. His message is fear God. Fear God. That's a powerful message, considering the fact that most people in the world at that time feared who? They feared Rome. They feared the emperor. But the message says fear God. You fear God, not men. It also contains the message of, or he also contains the message of, give God glory. That's what being a Christian is all about, ultimately, is giving God glory. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all to the, to the glory of God. That's what we're all about, giving God the glory. He also says we need to worship God. Because he's the creator. Do you see that? The idea of God being the creator. And because he's the creator of all things, not the emperor, but because he's the creator of all things, he's worthy of worship. And the angel says that the people need to know that the time of God's judgment has come. No more repentance. Fear God. Give him glory. Worship him because he's about to execute judgment. Time is up. The time of the execution of his judgment on his enemies has come. Now, that's what the first angel says there. 
Now in verse number eight, another angel talks, another angel speaks, and he, he clearly announces the judgment of God. He clearly announces the downfall of the Roman Empire. In verse eight, he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. I like that language because it appears that the angel is announcing the fall of, of God's enemy, even though they technically at that time are still standing, right? But the angel speaks it as if it though it's already happened. And that's how it is with God. God can speak things as if they have already happened because he's God, because he is faithful and true. And when he says something, it will come to pass. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now let's talk about this language of Babylon a little bit. Let's talk about Babylon. Can somebody tell me, can somebody tell me what is significant? Don't tell me what this means just yet. But just think about the Old Testament. What is significant about Babylon when you study your Old Testament? Anybody got an idea about that? It was never going to be rebuilt. Yes, that's, a, that's an excellent point. It was never going to be rebuilt. Anyone else have something? What's something that Brother Don and Peggy after that? Babylon destroyed the temple. And who was the king at that time? You remember? You obviously, Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. Uh, so I want to remember that thought, everyone. Brother Don said Babylon destroyed the temple. And we're talking about the temple of Solomon, the Solomon's temple. Sister Peggy, you had a thought, ma'am. Yes, yes, Sister Peggy, and I actually wrote that down. I wrote down, when I think about Babylon, to go with what all y'all are saying, which are correct answers, Babylon was one of the major enemies of God's people in the Old Testament, right? They were one of the major enemies of God's, of God's people. So, so hopefully you remember this right here. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is dealing directly with Babylon because he was in Babylonian captivity, wasn't he? In fact, he spent his whole life in Babylonian captivity, pretty much. He didn't go back with the, uh, the remnant that went back to uh, Jerusalem after the, the decree of Cyrus. He stayed in Babylon, and he spent the rest of his life really kind of as a statesman or a, a politician. He had a high position in the empire because God exalted him. Now, Daniel's interesting book. It's a difficult book, especially the second half of the book. First six chapters, not as difficult. The, the last six are, are more difficult. But the thing that makes Daniel such a unique and great book, it, it, it is, it is a, a book that deals with world kingdoms. Daniel prophesies by inspiration of the Holy Spirit what was going to take place concerning world kingdoms. And God in that book clearly shows through Daniel his ability to see into the future concerning world events clearly, and his ability to control those things providentially. Now, you know about Daniel 2, the big statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about and how all those, uh, all those elements of the statue represented various kingdoms. Those same kingdoms in Daniel 2 are also part of Daniel 7. It's the same four kingdoms, just a different kind of vision. Now, the four kingdoms, the four world kingdoms that Daniel speaks of throughout the book are Babylon, which was the kingdom in existence during his time. There is the Medo-Persians who would conquer Babylon 
and then the Greeks who would who would later be dominant after the the conquering of Alexander the Great and the division of his empire by his four generals after his death. Then you have Rome, which is the kingdom that would be in control of the world as far as a world kingdom goes in the time of Jesus and the apostles and the early church. This is the enemy of God's people by the time you get to Revelation, right? Now, Babylon is interesting because, like y'all said, this was a major enemy of God's people in the Old Testament. This was the kingdom that took God's people into captivity. God actually used them to take his people into captivity. But because of their haughtiness and their arrogance, through various prophets, the prophet Isaiah and others, even here in Daniel, God prophesied also or foretold how they would be punished, how they would go down because of their rebellion against him. And so Nebuchadnezzar, while he was a great king who led a, a great kingdom, that kingdom didn't stand. That kingdom rebelled against God, and God brought them down also. God actually brought them, brought them down literally almost overnight when you read Daniel chapter, Daniel chapter 5. And so Daniel foretells of the demise of Babylon throughout the book that bears his name. And in Revelation, John he also speaks of Babylon, but I don't believe he's talking about the Babylon of Daniel's day, right? He's not talking about that Babylon because as Mitch said, that Babylon would never be built again. That Babylon's way gone by the time you get to, to Revelation. Instead, when John speaks of Babylon there, when the angel says fallen, fallen is Babylon, who is Babylon there? That's Rome. I think that is symbolism for God's people then, now, in the first century, which was Rome. That's what I believe there. He is saying that Babylon or Rome is going to be defeated. Like the Babylon of the Old Testament, who destroyed the Old Testament temple, this Babylon, Rome, who's trying to destroy the New Testament temple, the church, it also was going to fall. It was going to be defeated by God, because God always takes care of his people. Babylon will fall. Fall, fall and fallen is Babylon. Now, why is Babylon going to fall according to verse 8? Look at verse 8. There's a reason given in verse 8 of Revelation 14. Revelation 14 and verse 8. Why is Babylon going to fall? Fall and fallen is Babylon. Why? Yes, fornication, immorality. So what does that tell us? This was a very immoral empire. The world was very immoral during, during, this, during this time. You know, we, we live in very immoral times also, but nothing's new under the sun, right? Nothing's new under the sun. Rome was, was very immoral. There was a lot of pagan worship taking place, and a lot of that paganism, uh, a lot of fornication, I'm sorry, was involved in that pagan worship. And you can just look at Corinth for a great example of that. This was a very immoral world. Now, let me just pause right there. Does anyone have any thoughts I, just, I want to make sure we just catch our breath for just a second. So far, where we're at with the um, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Any, any thoughts for that? Brother Mitch. Yes, sir. That is interesting. I had heard of that, but I hadn't heard about it as deep as you just said it. 
That's powerful. Uh, Brother Mitch was saying Saddam Hussein made some efforts to try to rebuild Babylon. And how successful was he in that? Even with all his money and power. When God says something's not going to be rebuilt, guess what? It's not going to be rebuilt. Uh, that, is a, that, is a, that is a great, great, great observation. And thanks for bringing that up. Uh, anyone else have a, a thought? Uh, Brother Kevin. Yes, yes. The, I think it's affected even God's people too, to a degree. Yes, brother Dennis, you have a comment, sir. Yes, sir. When was Daniel written, and were the Israelites able to understand? You say the first part of the question was when was Daniel written. What was the second part, sir? I missed it. Were the Israelites able to understand what Daniel had written? Okay, so the first part, if I'm not mistaken. Daniel goes into captivity in about 605, in about 605 B.C. The captivity lasts to about 536 B.C. Brother Don, correct? I, I can't recall exactly when the book was written during that time. In fact, there's a lot of debate even among scholars today about when Daniel was written. Which, which part of the book? You're looking at 12 chapters. Right. They're written at different times. And at various points in, of his life. Not chronologically, yes. So it's hard to, and that's why even scholars have a hard time dating that book. One reason why scholars really have a hard time dating that book is because of how precise it is with world history, and they do not want to accept the fact that it was written prior to the events taking place because, if, because it's just too precise. So a lot of critics really try to date it way past the events when they actually took place. So, so there's some debate on that. Uh, as far as what the Israelites would have understood, uh, as far as now you're asking, are you asking about a particular part of the book or just the whole book? It's, oh, I think I think most Jews would have would have certainly been been very in tune with what Daniel was saying as, as far as that stuff goes. Um, the toughest chapter in that book is, in my judgment, is Daniel 11. If you don't know some world history, you're going to struggle with Daniel 11. Uh, but I do think. When you look at men like Judas the Hammer and the Maccabees and what they were doing, I think they had some understanding of God's plan for them uh, to a large degree. Uh, so it's hard to say exactly which Jews knew what, but I will say the Jews understood that kind of language a lot better than we do because it was just part of their, it was, it was part of their culture, it was part of who they were. It, it was a genre that was very familiar to them and to their children. So I think they had a very good understanding of it. Uh, Brother Don, yes sir, and then we'll move on. I never heard that before. Very interesting. And, and, and Alexander's main thing was to spread Greek culture. Well, that would explain the, the Septuagint and how he wanted to uh, part under his, under his reign was the effort to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that the Jews could be able to read their scriptures because they were spread all over the place. So that would make a lot of sense. Good thoughts. Good thoughts, everyone. So, Brother Dennis, I hope that helps some, sir. I, I hope it does. All right, let's keep going here. Let's go. And let me just say one last thing about this immorality thing in Babylon. I can't help but read that and think about our culture today and how this is getting worse and worse. I mean, what is this whole month about? What's this month? 
Does this remind you of anything? Does this remind you of Revelation a little bit? How does God feel about the immorality going on in the time of Rome based on what we see in Revelation 14? He's judging them for it. You think God has changed how he felt about that since then? Yeah, so the, the God takes, it takes no satisfaction us having a month like this. This is an open rebellion against, against him. And there's always a price to pay if people don't repent. That's one of the things we learned from the Bible. So I just wanted to kind of wanted to say that. Okay, let's go to the next part here, verses 9 through 11. There's a third angel that speaks. And this, this third angel uh, even continues to talk about God's judgment even more. And he says that not only is the empire going to be judged by God, but anyone who's in allegiance with the beast, they're also going to be judged. This was a shot at not just the citizens of Rome who were involved in emperor worship, but any Christians who were thinking about going that direction too. And so let's just look back at that again real quick. In Revelation 14 and verse 9, I just let the Holy Spirit speak to us on it. Revelation 14 and verse 9, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast. See, this is the idea of the emperor worship here. Getting involved in this false worship. If you worship the beast and his image, if you receive a mark on his forehand or a mark on his forehand or on his hand, the idea of being in allegiance with the beast. He will also drink. He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, the wine of the wrath of God. No one should ever want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath, which is mixed in the full strength in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone and the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's the idea of just eternal punishment. The idea of eternal punishment. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Torment forever. And they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Now this same language here, remember this language, because we're going to come across it later in Revelation 20. When Brother Mitch gets to Revelation 20, we're going to see the same kind of language being announced. But the idea here is if, if anyone's in allegiance with the beast, if anyone's involved in worshiping uh, the emperor, emperor worship, immorality, all these things that stand against God, they're going to be on the receiving end of God's wrath also. So Christians need to pay close attention to that. They needed to listen to that carefully. Stay on the right side. Stay on the right team. Stay on the right army. Because anyone who's not with God is against God. And if you're against God, you're going to be receiving the same punishment that, that those who are part of the empire receive. That's the idea there. So that's verses 9 through 11. Look at verses 12 through 13. Let's look at verses 12 through 13. Okay? Just, just as we go through this, okay? Just keep thinking of judgment. Judgment, judgment, judgment. This whole chapter is about judgment. All right? Not final judgment. Good job, Brother Dennis. And thanks for... I actually was going to bring it up later, but let's go ahead and say it now. Because when you get to this next part here, especially when we get to verse 14 in just a second, and we go down to verse 20, I think that's still talking about judgment on Rome. Even though that may look like final judgment and there's some reaping going on, which reminds you of some of Jesus' parables. It may make you think of final judgment. It's not final judgment. It's similar language, but it's a specific judgment on, the, on, on a specific people. So I'm glad you brought that up. Okay, so look at verse 12, Revelation 14, 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints. 
I highlighted in my Bible that word perseverance. My translation says perseverance. See, after God talks about how he was going to punish those who go in an allegiance with the beast, he talks about perseverance. What does perseverance mean? Patience. Endurance. You won't quit. You must persevere as a Christian. We must persevere as Christians. And doesn't the Bible tell us over and over again to persevere? That's a big part of the book of James and Peter's epistles. Perseverance. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The idea here is don't get involved in this false worship. Keep persevering. Keep the commandments of God. Stay loyal to Jesus. If you do that, this is what's going to happen in verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven. This is coming from heaven, from the throne of God. Write, blessed. What does the word blessed mean? If we, we've been reading the Psalms this year, haven't we? I hope you've been keeping up with that. We see the word blessed a lot in the Psalms, don't we? Remember Psalm 1 is found all over the place in the first Psalm. What is blessing? Make that simple for me. What does blessed mean? Joy, happiness, an inexpressible joy and happiness that ultimately comes from God. So there is blessings for those who die. But not just die, die where? In the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. You know, I've done several funerals as a preacher. And one of the scriptures I like to read at funerals is this scripture right here. I like to read the scripture. Uh, in fact, Don, I, I may have even read this uh, at, at your wife's funeral. I like to read it a lot. And I like to read it because I think it comforts families, especially families who are grieving the loss of a, of a Christian. And we see here that when it comes to death, death is not a bad thing for the Christian. It's a great thing. In fact, it is the greatest thing. It's a blessing. The Bible says it's a blessing. Why? Well, keep reading. Yes, says the spirit, so that they may what? Rest. It's rest. You rest from your labors. All the things. Goes, goes back to the idea in verse 12 of perseverance. See that perseverance? All the things we got to persevere through in this life. All the trials and the persecution and the things just beat us down and weigh us down. When we die in the Lord, we rest from that stuff. We don't have to deal with that stuff anymore. Why? Because our deeds follow with us. God remembers our perseverance. He remembers our deeds. That doesn't mean we earn our salvation, but it does mean that God rewards us for being faithful and true to him. There's blessing. And this would have been, well, let me just say it this way. If you were a Christian living 2,000 years ago, and, and you're living during this time when Christians are being murdered and they're losing their jobs and being thrown in jail because they won't involve themselves in emperor worship. If you read a verse like this or read this from the apostle, how would that make you feel? Would that motivate you to keep going? Would that motivate you to say, look, if I got to die for the cause of Christ, then I'll do it. That's what that's designed to do. See, stuff like this was designed to help these Christians or motivate them to hang in there, even if they have to die. Because God says, even if you have to die for me, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be blessed. 
And this same is true today. The same principle applies. Even though we're not being persecuted like these people, when we die in the Lord, we're still blessed. And we're blessed from rest, from whatever trials we're going through as Christians right now. So I really like this verse, and I think it's a verse that should encourage us. Anyone have any comments about this, Brother Don, then Brother Gary after that? Go ahead, sir. There are seven blessed statements in the book of Revelation, beginning with, blessed is the one who reads and understands. Right. Following right on through until eventually, where are you? Yes. A lot of preachers have that, that series in their bag. The, Yes, there's, there's a lot of, of, I have a couple of lessons uh, like that too in mind. The blessing statements in Revelation, there are seven of them, which is interesting because of number seven again. Uh, very good. Brother Gary, go ahead, sir. Yep. Matthew 6, Jesus said, uh, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy what thieves do not break in or steal. When you store your treasures in heaven, that's what, that's what you're getting right there. That's what it's all about. So, so what I hope you can just see from that, that, those passages is God is not promising his people it's going to be easy in the days ahead. But he is promising that if they persevere, even if they have to die, it's going to be better for them. He's going to take care of them either way. They will be blessed. Brother Doug, go right ahead, sir. Yep. And then not only rest from their labors here, but their works will follow them. I appreciate what you said that God knows the labors, but how much more so us? Yep. How much more so are we encouraged knowing somebody faithful dying in Christ that we want to work all the more harder or yes. endure all so much more because their works will follow them. Your, fo your works follow you. You're not working in vain. Paul said that. Your labor's not in vain. We don't earn our salvation. But we, we, we work for the Lord, we do deeds of righteousness because God sees those deeds and he rewards his children, just like any parent. Uh, so, so that's what we see there. So that, that, that verse is designed to be a blessing to you and to me and to motivate us too. Okay, so let's look at this last part here. Let's look at the last part. So we looked at 12 through 13, the reward of the faithful is announced, all right? And to go back with that language, from now on, more saints are going to die. I think you see that too. More saints are going to die. But God is saying, hang in there because you're still going to be blessed. All right, so the next part here, verses 14 through 20. Let me read that because that's the part I haven't read yet. Let's just read that real quick. John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Let's just stop right there for just a second. Who goes by... Son of man often in the New Testament. Now, I know Ezekiel, the prophet, he often refers to himself as a son of man, but he's not the ultimate son of man. Jesus. Jesus. If you want to find the gospel where Jesus calls himself son of man the most, look at the gospel of Luke. That is Luke's big identifying marker for Jesus, son of man. And I think that's exactly who it is here. I think son of man here is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think as we keep reading, you'll see why I'm saying that. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head. Notice and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. 
Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth, earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the, cl on the cloud swung his sickle on, over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, fire is always judgment, okay, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. They're ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. That's the key. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay, so let me just say a few things here because I really want to get this in, and I'll try to give you the last couple of minutes, okay? The limitations, the limitations of God's patience is on full display here. Do you see it? God is a patient God, but there are limitations or limits to his patience. He won't just put up with sin forever. In Genesis 15, in verse 16, in Genesis 15 and verse 16, God spoke about a time when he would punish the Amorites when their sins were complete. When their sins were complete. In Leviticus 18.25, in Leviticus 18.25, God spoke to the Israelites about how Canaan would spew out its inhabitants. The idea in both of those passages is God gives people time to repent, but there comes a time when their sins get full, when they get complete, when God has had enough, his patience is up, and he exercises judgment. That's the idea. The Amorites, he wasn't going to do that till their sins were complete. The same was true of the people, the rest of the people in Canaan. God used Israel to, as a tool or a vessel to punish the Canaanites because their sins were complete. Their sins were full. God was going to use Israel as a tool to spew out the inhabitants of the land. That's the idea. Now, I'm bringing that up because that's the same idea here in Revelation 14. Rome's time is up. Their sins are complete. It's time for them to be judged. God has given them enough time. Their sins are full. And so God's full judgment is coming. God's about to bring them down completely. There's not going to be any more time for repentance. Look at verse 14. One like the Son of Man. I think this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sitting on a white cloud. Again, apocalyptic. This is apocalyptic. Jesus in white. We know what that's about by now. We know that. He's wearing a golden crown. He's the victorious king, the one with all authority. He has a sharp sickle. Can somebody tell me what is a sickle? What is a sickle? Yes, it's a blade. And what is it used for? For reaping. That's right. So a sickle. A sickle. It is a farming tool. It is something that has a semicircular blade. And as my sister said here, it's used to cut grass. It's used to reap. It's used to cut things down, to cut down tall grass. And so the Son of Man has a sickle here. What is he doing with the sickle? 
What is he doing with it? Make it simple for me. He's reaping. And what does that mean? What does the idea of reaping mean? What does that really mean? I've been saying it to you over and over again by now. What is he executing? This is judgment. The symbol, the sickle is symbolic for the execution of judgment. And Isaiah 19. And Isaiah 19, God describes himself as riding on a swift cloud into Egypt. God did not literally do that, but the idea of the cloud is the idea of God coming in judgment on the cloud. Jesus on the cloud here in Revelation 14, isn't he? He's on the cloud. That's the idea of judgment. Do you remember the parable of the tares? Matthew 13, 39 says that, and that one is the end of the world. That one's talking about the final judgment when the Lord comes back. When he comes back, he's going to send the angels to do what? They're going to be the reapers. They're going to be the reapers. They're going to be dividing the wheat from the tares, the righteous from the unrighteous. See, in that parable, the harvest or the field is, is the world. And the angels are going to be the reapers. They're going to be separating the good from the bad. They're going to gather up the tares. They're going to separate the tares from the rest of the harvest. That's what Jesus says is going to happen when he comes again. Matthew 13. That's the same idea in Revelation 14. But as Brother Dennis said, this is talking. This is limited to Rome here. Now, final judgment, Revelation 14. The sickle here is symbolic for the execution of God's judgment. Rome's sins are full and the Lord is going to use. And if you notice the text carefully, you've got angels again doing the reaping. Isn't that in Revelation 14? The angels are reaping again. God is going to use the angels to reap. He's going to exercise his full judgment on the enemies. That, without getting too technical with you and too scholarly on you, because y'all know Sean Jeffers ain't no scholar, but to, get, to make it simple, this is all about judgment. The sickle represents God's judgment. God is going to execute judgment on his enemies. He's going to take care of his people, but he will bring down his enemies. That's the idea. It's that simple. That's what all that means. Even 19 and 20. You go back to 19 and 20, that last part. What happened when the angels swung the sickle? Well, the grapes were gathered from the earth, and they were thrown into the wine press, weren't they? What does that represent? Being thrown into the wine press. That's judgment again. It's all judgment. God's just using this strong language to say he's going to execute judgment. Don't make the mistake of trying to literalize that. There is no way that any of that could be literal. There's just absolutely no way. It is, it is impossible for what you see in 19 and 20 to be, to be literal. Even that distance of 200 miles, that's, there's no way that could be true. We know that. It's just judgment. It's exaggeration. Language. To talk about how God is going to bring down his enemies. They are going to be trodden. They are going to be brought down. They're going to be gathered up and thrown into the wine press. That's the idea there. Okay, let me pause for a second. Someone, maybe y'all have something y'all want to add to that. I just want, the main thing I hope you take away, this is, this is God saying, I'm about to do what I'm going to do. I'm about to execute judgment. Brother Mitch, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Trodden. Yeah. It isn't 
No, I agree with that. I, I think that's I think that's intentional language there. Uh, this is a this is God bringing down uh, an, an empire and this is God doing away with them completely. Uh, and it's, I think the strong language that's being used there, Mitch, like you said, I think that's intentional. I really do. Uh, so good, good point. Point well taken. Brother, Brother Doug, go ahead, sir. I'm not going to catch it. No, go, no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, does this tie back to the third? Yes, it does. Let's talk about that a little bit. I'm glad you brought that up. The thirds thing. That's different than that. Because okay. the third thing was just partial stuff. God's not dealing with partial anymore. This is complete. And we're going to see that more as we move forward. See, this is chapter 14. Wait till we get to 16. Wait till we get to this battle of Armageddon and all that stuff. So this is just the starting point. But right here, starting here, no more third stuff. God has made it clear. My, see, the third stuff represented God's patience. That's what that represented. This is the other side. This is God saying, no more. My patience is up with you. You will go down completely right here. Where are you at there, Doug? I'm sorry, I missed that, buddy. But, oh, yes. That that makes sense. And again, right, right, right. No, that's a good point. So that, <laughs> right. Only <laughs> oh, leave it up to you to end the class with something like that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> All right. Last thing I want to say real quick. Last thing I want to say. Y'all are just such a great class. I appreciate you. Take these things with you. Those Christian, those Christian qualities in verses four through five. Apply that to your life. I need to apply that to my life. That's how God wants his people to be. Highlight verses four through five. Remember, God still despises immorality. He despised it then. He despises it now. That's true. But also remember, death's going to be a blessing for us. Don't ever forget that, okay? When you go to the funeral of a Christian, a faithful Christian, always remember those people are better off than us right now. They're better off than us. And then the, the last events we talked about there about the sickle and things, I know there's a lot more we could have said about that, but just know that's God exercising judgment on Rome. But the last thing, the principle of that stuff there, that's going to happen on the judgment day too. There will be reaping. There will be separation of righteous and the wicked. And on that one, that will also be another demonstration of God's patience being up with the wicked. And it's going to be a, totally destruction, a total destruction of the world, not just an empire. So let's stop right there. Thank you all so much. Y'all let me get through that. And I appreciate it. Let's go ahead and get ready for Revelation 15 on the Lord's Day. Thank you all very much.